I need to know everything Who in the what and the where I need everything Trust me, I hear what you're saying But act like it's new what you're telling me I'm curious, George I hop in the Porsche with five and a horse I'm ready for war I'm coming for throws To turn to a ghost I need to know everything Now you be surprised at the info you get Is by letting them talk So I'm letting them talk Gotta keep quiet, maneuver in science Then let them in talk up their body Another one body That's just how it go I got some secrets Hello and welcome to JK Plus One I am not your host PTF. He's still not here yet. Saratoga is running and he's still not here. He's, he had a, he said the other day on the podcast, he had some, someone knocked off a mirror from his car. I didn't have the heart to question him on what that had to do with him being at Saratoga. If someone knocked a mirror off of my car, I would just drive the car without the mirror and I would fix it in September. That's just how dedicated I am. And then I think he's at Del Mar next weekend. So I guess he doesn't have to drive the Del Mar so he can, who knows? I am your host, Jonathan Kinchin. And uh, we got one week in the books at Saratoga, and it was a fun week. You know, a little bit of weather here and there, but nothing too crazy. It's just part of the summers here. You know, you're going to have some days that are going to be like that. Um, but it, it was a ton of fun. Saw a bunch of people. Um, very happily saw a, a lot of the JK shirts out there. So thank you all uh, for, for uh, rocking those shirts. And uh, it was a great opening to the meet. It's a reminder daily is why we love Saratoga so much. Um, getting to see some of the superstars show up, uh, the grade one, uh, Diana with, with in Italian and with, uh, with, with, uh, white beam running her down. Um, we got to see, uh, what looks like could be a special horse in, in pirate for, for Todd Pletcher. And, uh, and then a transition into our guest today, we saw, uh, unified Alliance, another one win the off the turf in the coronation cup. So we got to see a lot of fun stuff. A lot of fun stuff, and I uh, hope you had a great weekend. And we've got what seven more weeks? I don't ever. I think it's seven more weeks. I don't do the math. I try not to think about it. I try to look at it in stages. I try to get through the first couple of weeks. We try to get into Whitney, and then we try to get to the Travers. But I don't try to get to them too fastly. I just try to stay, uh, stay alive basically until those situations come around. Because uh, once you get to the Travers, man, it's downhill. It, it ends pretty quickly. Um, I want to thank our friends at Qatar Racing. Um, looking forward to seeing some more Qatar runners uh, up here at Saratoga. Uh, looking forward to seeing what they do at the sale. Really excited about that. Uh, you know, Sheikh Fahad was very involved uh, last year in the sale and, and, and doing some partnerships. So um, if you're listening and you're out buying horses and there's you've got a good one you like, uh, I would ring up uh, the Qatar team to see if there's any interest in, in partnering, getting involved. Uh, looking to continue to expand their presence here in the U.S. Um, look, my guest this this week is is someone that I've been trying to get on for a while, and uh, I had to just let uh, his wonderful wife's interview air and uh, get some air and breathe a little bit. And, and we had Maggie on uh, kind of in the first run of JK Plus Ones, and I think it's been far enough now that we can get Tom in a little little pre-interview with Tom um, here because. We're also going to get Tom at some time, some point this year. We're going to get him for cart talk, uh, get him for cart talk. And who knows production meeting in the middle of the show. What about, what if we did cart talk with Tom and Maggie same time? Like we've, we've done in the past with multiple, uh, multiple people. We'll see. But uh, I do want to apologize a little bit in advance. Um, one of the tricky parts uh, of being on the fly doing this show is we were having a little bit of a technical issue with Tom's mic, he kind of cuts in and out a few times. It usually comes back pretty quick. I think there's like maybe one really annoying time where he said something that you actually didn't hear, and I didn't hear it either. So we'll just have to 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 to, to tweet at Tom to find out what he said. So I want to apologize in advance for that little bit uh, of a technical issue. But uh, the rest of it, a fun fun hour hearing Tom talk about some of his fun horses. And, and I actually asked Tom a question that I could probably ask a lot of horsemen, but I, I went ahead and, and, and hit Tom with the question is start to finish from 6 a.m. until the horse breaks from the gate. What does a day look like when you have a runner in uh, at Saratoga? And, and it's, it's some things I haven't heard before. So I found it to be pretty interesting. So let me shut up and uh, let's get to our friend, Tom Morley. Tom Morley, what's going on? JK. Good to have, good to be on your show, mate. Yeah, no, I've been, I've been, uh, I've been thinking about getting you for a while. Maggie made her appearance, and then uh, earlier in the in the in the run with these JK Plus One shows, and then uh, 
uh, honestly, to be honest, last week I was thinking, who should I have for JK plus one? And uh, my wife, Joe Vanina said, you should have Tom Morley. And I was like, oh yeah, maybe I'll get Tom. And I was like, but it was, it was the Tuesday before the meet. And I figured, oh my God, he's probably on a horse van or following a horse van and getting a lot, had a lot going on. So uh, let you get settled in first. The, the, the Tuesday before meet opens is always one of the busiest days of the year because it's literally packing 40 dresses for 40 days of racing for Mrs. Morley, plus 40 other dresses for the small children and everything else and moving up here. So good call to wait a week. Well, I, I think that we should start. We should, I, we should get the we should set the the, the, the story, the story straight here. There's no Tommy Morley. You don't know a Tommy Morley, right? No, I do not know Tommy Morley. There is no such person as Tommy Morley. We'll just we'll just throw that straight out there right now. Well, I, I look, I, I I figured I figured you didn't know who that person was, but I thought I would check with you on that. Uh, Tom, I was reading your 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 bio, and I, I well, first of all, I didn't know that you your cousin was John O'Spence, who's who's a great friend of this podcast with the work that he does with uh, Qatar Racing. Um, your whole family is surrounded by racing. Yeah, it's um, you know they say that. You, you can be born into this this industry and and i've been very fortunate that um a number of of close family members in in very varying facets have been involved in in racing and breeding and administration and um you know manage general management within our oh we yeah. lost you there for a second it seems like you're back now yeah i got you Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, yeah. No, I've been very lucky that, that a, a, a huge amount of my family have been involved in various facets of the of the racing and breeding industry. Um, you know, Jono's father, Christopher Spence, was senior steward of the Jockey Club in England, and uh, he and my father owned and bred horses together. Um, my other uncle, David, is a or was sorry was a multiple Grade One winning uh, national hunt trainer, and then multiple Group One winning flat trainer, and Henry Daly is a first cousin of mine who's one of the leading jumps trainers in England at the moment. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of, lot of, um, lot of it involved in, in our family. At what point, you know, I've always found it to be interesting. I had this conversation with Florent Giroux and, and just others, uh, Graham motion, people who uh, their, their career started overseas. And then there was a decision at some point to come to the U S um, we'll go to you to the very beginning for you at some point, but what was the decision for you to, to make that jump uh, to move across the pond? So I'd worked for Jeremy Nazida for four and a half years in Newmarket. And Jeremy obviously started his career, uh, his training career in California. Uh, first of all, as assistant to John Gosden there, and then under his own banner as well. And, you know, it's something that we I'd seen John Gosden obviously do very successfully and Jeremy. And I felt that it was having spent a little bit of time here when I was on the Godolphin Flying Start program. I, You know, Jeremy and my father thought it would be very beneficial um, for me to come and spend a bit of time in America before I did start training. And the plan was always to start training in England. Um, Stephen Hillen very sweetly aided in getting me a position with Eddie Keneally. And the idea was to come out here for 18 months to two years um, and get a real feel for the American industry and bloodlines and then go home and train. But um, yeah, I'm still here 13 years later. <laughs> was, and this is another question that I asked Graham and, and, and Florent and, and those who, who started in Europe, how big of an adjustment was it for you who, you know, for majority of your life, I'm sure you only saw turf racing, to, to then be thrust into American racing where a majority of it, at least at that time, it's starting to kind of come around a little bit to more of a split uh, dirt racing. How, how was that adjustment for you? So I will always maintain that I am at a little bit of a disadvantage until I feel like I've caught up because from the age of 12 to the uh, basically the age of nearly 30, I had geared myself to train in England with a view to trying to win European classic races. Um, I had no real focus on American bloodlines or facets of dirt racing. Um, and so I've always maintained that while the Godolphin Flying Start program gives you 10 years of, of experience in two, I do feel like I am a decade behind where I would have been if I'd started training in Europe because you have to adjust very, very quickly and become familiar with not just the horses, but 
the surfaces and the personnel who are involved with these horses as quickly as you possibly can. And, you know, to, to start training here in America off two years of working within the American industry, I think, you know, I, 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 I certainly feel like by now I feel like I've caught up. But uh, to start with, I felt that I was kind of chasing the eight ball, as it were. So, I, you know, we've had a couple of people that are graduates of the of uh, the Flying Start program. Um, you know, if, if we were on an elevator, maybe a long elevator ride, what, what, what was that program like? What did it entail? What were some of the highlights for you? I think the exposure globally to the industry is probably the, the, the absolute highlight. Obviously, a, a lot of it is um, based around the breeding industry, which isn't my specialist subject, as it were. But um, to be able to work at farms like Kildangan and then Johnabel here in America, uh, to go to the Hunter Valley, um, you know, the, the, those were staggering opportunities. And um, but then to be able to do placements within those countries. So, um, you know, I, I spent some time with Tim Easterby. I spent some time with Owen Harty. I spent some time with Gay Waterhouse. Um, I spent, spent some time at Godolphin and with Satish Seema in, in Dubai. You know, those were, those were five placements that I realistically would, might never have had the opportunity to, to undertake if, I, if, if it hadn't been for the program. Um, I was lucky enough to be in Owen's barn when we had Dubai Escapade, for instance. So, you know, it, it exposed me to a top level horse in America and the same in Australia. Um, and that, that side of things is, is just irreplaceable. I mean, I honestly always say the same thing about the program. Um, it's the most enormous debt of gratitude to His Highness Sheikh Mohammed because he, every 12 people that start that program get a, uh, an enormous, um, advantage over their peers in that the, the amount of exposure you get to leading industry um, people around the world is just it's it's irreplaceable you would not be able to do that without the program and maggie uh, helped me out a little bit with some stuff to kind of get you to, to talk about at what point was your gap year was that before um flying start yeah, I took a it's a very English thing to do. But I took a year out between um, between school and university, um, and so that was my gap year. Uh, and I spent a good chunk of that working at Ed Dunlop's. Um, we were lucky enough to have uh, Leilani and Mott Juice while I was there. So two Oaks winners um, in the in the barn, and and that was my first uh, paid job within racing. Um, I was eighteen years old then, but but obviously spent a good bit of time in my uncle's yard and very, very lucky to have been brought up in a, in a very rich area of, of flat training and national hunt training in the North of England, surrounded by Peter and Mick and Tim Easterby and Richard Fahey, etc. So, you know, multi just five miles down the road. And it's, um, you know, that's the, the, one of the two centers for, for racing in the UK. So, um, but yeah, the gap here was my, my, my first paid job as it were. So now you 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 get involved with the Flying Start, um, and then after that you head to the U.S. to work for for Eddie Eddie Keneally. You started in New York, or did you go to Kentucky with him first, and then to New York, or after, how did that after unfold? The, after the Flying Start program program, I went straight to Jeremy Nazida for four and a half years in Newmarket. Um, got it, I, got it, got it. And then came out here, and and look the. My Jeremy was a huge reason for why I came out here, um, and and I was very lucky to be there during the the heyday of her, of his training career. You know, we had um, thirteen Grade One winners while I was there, and a European champion sprinter, and uh, a number of classic winners. It was a, it was a wonderful time to be in his yard, and he wasn't. He, I, I think, he would readily admit to the fact that he he's not a hands on teacher, but if you pay attention and you watch what he was doing with these horses then it was a it was a, a really great place to to learn about racing and he wasn't afraid to travel we won as at belmont we won the uh, gotham with awesome act while i was there he just won the breeders cup juvenile with wilco you know he he was not afraid to have a crack at big american races um so that that already lent a little bit of exposure to american racing and then yeah i came here and uh, started at Palm Meadows um, for Eddie and um, Brendan Walsh was the uh, assistant and I was the foreman um, and then did Keeneland, Churchill, Saratoga and then um, Eddie 
opened a division in New York for the first time and left me in charge of it at Belmont in the fall after, after Saratoga. At, w- at what point did you realize, you know, okay, I, I might stick around here. I like this New York thing. Um, I think I, I, I really enjoyed America in general to start with. And then I got to Saratoga and I realized how we, we, we had a wonderful Saratoga that year for Eddie. And I, but I did realize how unbelievably competitive the New York circuit is at that point. Um, and you know, you're always looking to test yourself in, in the, in the, in the right arena. Um, and New York is, in my opinion, the, the, the toughest and best racing that, that we have in the U S. So, um, it began to, uh, you know, I, I, I really enjoyed Saratoga, but then when we got back to Belmont in the fall, having already spent some time there with Owen Harty, um, of, sort of five, six years previously, I really, really, you know, the, the it, it really sank sank in that I was really enjoying my time in New York and it might be something that I needed to think about a bit more. Um, when you first went on your own, a couple of owners that, that really supported you in that transition, because I know as going out on your own, man, it takes it takes at least one one good owner to, to help you kind of get over that hump. Uh, who kind of stands out for you to help you with that transition? So I started, uh, when I decided to, to train, I... Um, I sat on the third floor at Aqueduct and I went through my phone and I didn't want to ring Eddie's clients um, because that's not. Um, uh, but I needed to work out whether I'd be able to get some horses and, and get started. But and, and Anthony Gray was the first person who agreed to send me a horse. Um, and he sent me Treblemaker. And that's how we started. It started out with um, one horse, one bridle, one saddle one wedding um, and one girlfriend to ride it, um, who's now my wife. So um, I groomed him and hot walked him. Maggie rode him and he won his second race. And that's how we got started. What, uh, whatever, whatever happened to, to that old warrior? So he only ever won one race for us. Then he went up to Finger Lakes and then he came back to us when he was retired as a pony. Uh, his name was Treblemaker. Um, and, and he was, you know, People always say who's the most special horse uh, or what's the most special win. He that that is always going to be there in the top, certainly the top five. Because um, I, I I will honestly, J.K. I will never forget standing uh, in the winner's circle, watching a horse that is running under your name leading a horse race, and at the sixteenth pole, I think. I don't think I'll ever experience that feeling again of thinking, oh my goodness, we're going to win a race here and it's us. It's not, we're not an assistant here. This was me, Maggie and a horse. Um, and we, we won a horse race and it, it was an amazing feeling. Um, so he's a, he was a, he's a very special one. Well, I, you know, I tell you like one of the cool things uh, that we've, you know, I've obviously sat and seen it, but a lot of people have got to see it because of the nature of, Maggie being on our show, the, the, the Fox sports show, whether it be Saratoga live or, or America's day at the races. And, and, and the fact that she, you know, her, her husband is a trainer, she works in the barn. One of the things that I think we've all been treated to is seeing her and you be so excited after a win. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's one of my favorite things is a, is a, a Maggie interview of Tom after you've won a race. It never gets boring and the day it does is the day you should stop training in my opinion and um one of my actual favorite videos was when uh carrick won the secretariat and maggie was still working uh when they ran the secretariat and i was on the sales ground here in saratoga because it was the first night of the new york bread sales so i hadn't gone to chicago because we had a lot of shopping to do that evening and there's a video of Maggie just going absolutely nuts in the paddock at Saratoga because Carrick had just upset the um, upset the secretary. And it's one of my favorite videos to watch because um, we don't watch races together. There's a little bit of a, uh, a, a tradition that we, you know, we have watched a race together and it didn't go very well and we just don't do it anymore. So when I can see her in these, those occasions as well, it's, it's really cool. You know, she, she is, an out and out horsewoman um, and a huge support act to me. Um, and, you know, I, I hope I'm 
as I can return the favor when when she's having having tough, difficult times at work as well. But she's um, very, very important to to many facets of my business, and it's wonderful to be able to share it with the you know the wins with a with a real horse person. Where where do you, so let's let's talk about a couple of right. Let's talk Saratoga and Belmont. Where so how do you do it if she's on air at Saratoga? Yeah. And you're in a race. Where does she watch from and where do you watch from? I don't, I have no idea where she watches from. <laughs> no idea. Um I uh I and, and and I am a typical horseman, JK. I find a spot and when a horse runs well from it, I go back to that spot and when one wins then you can damn the next time one of them runs, you know exactly where I'll be. I'll be standing there until I go 0 for 8 in that spot. And then I'm like, oh, I got to mix it up, find somewhere else to watch the race from. So I don't have a favored vantage point. So, so the first time you guys see each other after a win is in the winner's circle. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think Dinah Drive last year, she broke the mold and bolted up into the grandstand after, the, after he won the lure. But um, yeah, no, it's gener- generally the first time I get serious in the winner's circle. Well, the, the first thing I asked her, and I said I was having you, and I, and I needed some fun stories. She said, you can ask about how he got me to go out with him. Oh, man. Uh, okay. <laughs> maybe, maybe I've been spoiled. Maybe I've been lucky um, in my past, but I have never had to chase like this in my life. Uh, I first saw Maggie in Saratoga. I first met Maggie in Saratoga. And she refused to go out with me until um, the night of Halloween. Uh, she agreed to go out for dinner with me the day after the Saturday of the Breeders' Cup. So it took from August to November to negotiate a date. Um, and uh, thank God she eventually said yes, because um, no, I, don't, I don't think I'd ever have got bored of, of chasing, but it was, um, it was certainly the longest chase I've been put through. Tom, uh, the, the other day, one of the things I love about this podcast versus the other way that a lot of people communicate in horse racing, which is Twitter, is that you can, you can hear someone's voice, you can elaborate on a concept, that uh, sometimes the, the, you feel restricted uh, through Twitter. It's, it's, it's one of my favorite things about having a podcast like this. And, and uh, there's a couple of weeks ago where you said something that, that I wanted to chat with you about that I thought was, it, it was interesting is that uh, someone had said something stupid about Maggie switching her picks. And, um, and I've gotten to a point where I don't really respond to dumb things people say on Twitter because I realize that it's not a real place. Yeah. And if I respond to them, then other people see it. But this is a situation where if someone were to say something stupid about my wife, I would feel the same way you felt where I had to then say something or had to, 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 to whatever. And so I basically wanted to just kind of echo your idea that what would you prefer her do? Would you prefer her say she likes a horse in the paddock and then lie to you when they're out on the racetrack and the horse is warming up shitty? Like what, what, what would you prefer her do in that situation? So social media is a very dark place, in my opinion. Um, it, it's a place where people can hide very easily and they can be um, not very welcoming and, and, and honestly quite rude and, and obnoxious at times. Now, this was this at the end of the day, Maggie, Maggie's primary job for Fox and for Naira is to be an analyst of horse flesh. And that is stood the test of time that she is absolutely phenomenal at it. Now, she's also a very good handicapper, a very good race reader, etc., etc. But that's not what her absolute A-game is. And so to try and say that she shouldn't be able to alter her opinion when she gets to do what she is best at just seems nonsensical to me. And you have to be careful, as you said, about going on social media and replying in these situations because you can end up going down a deep, dark hole with a man behind a keyboard or a lady behind a keyboard who uh, you're never going to meet and they're never going to actually impact your life. But, um, yeah, it, there, are, there are certainly times when I, I wish social media, media didn't exist, but I also think it's a staggeringly important form of communication um, and, and, and can be an awful lot of fun as well. Yeah, it, it, it's a situation too where, you know, I've, and, and obviously Maggie's situation is a little bit different, but, you know, um, racing is a fluid thing. 
And, and there'll be situations where, you know, I've, I've someone complained about one time that I picked a horse um, on our podcast on Thursday. And then on Saturday on the show, I switched my pick. Well, I mean, am I allowed to gather more information between Thursday and Saturday? Like it's, it's one of those deals where like on Thursday I picked, uh, you know, I picked uh, whatever I picked uh, a Rudy Rodriguez horse in a maiden special weight race. And then come Saturday morning, I've gotten 17 texts that the Todd Pletcher horse can't lose. Can't lose. What, what would you like for me to do in that situation? Just say, oh, I'm going to stick to this Rudy horse. Or, or am I supposed to, to provide that additional information? It's not a perfect medium. And, and when it comes to Maggie, it's like, I, I just, I don't understand what people would rather her do in that situation. The, the and, thing that I find astonishing about my wife is her ability to assess a, such a number of horses so quickly. Now, you have to remember that for 45 minutes before every race in New York, these horses go to the holding barn. So for 45 minutes, I get to look at my opposition. I get to look at their coat, their weight, the way they're walking around, whether et cetera, et cetera. Maggie does it in six minutes, the whole race. And, and she, she's, she's better at it still than I am when I've got three quarters of an hour to, to assess them. And so to not want that opinion because she's had to do some picks off pps then i just think that's very short-sighted personally yeah no and and i i and the other thing too that's great about about maggie she's unique in terms of i know some other places have tried to, to duplicate um what she does and and and, and also would get acacia a ton of credit too for what she does lots of places have tried to duplicate that yep. but there's a there's a standard bearer um, in, in my opinion, and it's, it's what we do here at Niger in, in terms of that, but it's such a valuable thing for someone like me who I can, I can obviously, I feel confident in my ability to look at the paper, but there's certain questions that I, there's certain questions that I so often want to answer that the answer lie within what Maggie's going to say. There's so many times where I love a horse on paper and I'm like, yeah, but is this horse fit off the break? I can't, I'll never have that answer. I can go stare at him for, 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 for an hour and a half. I'm never going to have that answer. Yeah. Um, and, and she can help provide that answer. If a horse is fit off the break, if a horse, Oh, I love this horse, but I wonder if he's going to like the turf. She can provide that answer for me where, you know, and this is no offense to my colleagues, but I, I, and I mean this in the nicest way. I don't necessarily care what Andy says because it's not that Andy doesn't have a great opinion. It's just, we are playing in the same arena. Yeah. So, I don't necessarily need, don't get me wrong. He'll talk me onto a horse or talk me off of a horse or point out something I missed, but I don't need his opinion. I need Maggie's. And, and, and I think a lot of people do appreciate, right. I, I don't want to focus on one idiot who said one dumb thing. Um, but, but I also, I know that as a, as a, as a man in racing who has to hear occasionally people say stupid things about your wife, I wanted to give you an opportunity to kind of uh, share your side. Yeah. I mean, look, I, Honestly, and I'm bound to be slightly biased about it because I'm married to her, but I think she is at the pinnacle of her career right now. I think she does lead the way uh, alongside, you know, uh, she is as good as a, a judge of horse flesh as we've been lucky enough to see on, um, on American TV. So, you know, it, yes, of course. And, and I think sometimes she's backed into a difficult position where she may say that she likes a horse the, the way the a horse looks but realistically the horse can't win on paper it doesn't make it's not she's not giving you her opinion of whether the horse is good enough to win she's giving you the opinion of how the horse itself is doing physically now whether you have decided from your handicapping etc whether that's going to push you over the edge and that's the horse you're going to bet on but uh, I think she she does a very very good job I think we're very lucky we have three fantastic analysts in the paddock in Acacia and Richard and her, uh, and they can really add to the, to the product um, that we're trying to put on. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's a good point because that's a, I, okay. If I love a horse, love a horse and Maggie says the horse doesn't look great. I probably won't do much adjusting. Right. But however, if there's a horse I'm on the fence about and Maggie likes or doesn't like, she is my ultimate decision maker in that process. If she, if, yep. if I'm on the fence about a horse, but that's how you should be about anything. I, I tell people that about info all the time. Cause you know, info is a dangerous thing. 
I don't let info necessarily move me on to a horse. I will allow info to move me off of a horse. You Absolutely. know, and I, I, I think I think, I think it's think, the best way to use it. I think that, that that is the best way to use that information. Maggie can much much easier talk me off a horse than talk me onto a horse. Apart from sometimes in two year old races where she is unbelievable at finding the horse um, in a field the first time starters at Saratoga. It's uncanny how often she gets it right. Tom, we, lo- we love the behind the scenes stuff. Uh, we, the behind the scenes stuff on this podcast is, is, is valuable. People love to hear it. And you kind of brought up an idea and a point that I wanted to, to see if you could help us with is, is what is, what does it look like from 6 a.m. until they get in the gate with one of your horses that's running. Let's say you have one in tomorrow in the seventh. Uh, and let's just say the seventh is post time is 345. What, what, is it, what does it look like from start to finish with that horse who's running on that day? So first thing is uh, general well-being and health check. Um, I'm in the barn every day by 4.15, 4.30. And we'd, I check all the horses, all the legs every day that, um, of whichever division I'm in. So that's where we start. And then a lot of people have their regimen for, for race day. Uh, someone like Christoph trains a lot of his runners on the morning of the race. A lot of people, uh, Scott Blas, he's always said to me, the key to them having these horses cranked up and ready to run as fast as they do is that they tack walk a lot of their horses. So they don't, they put a saddle and a bridle on the day before, but they don't actually take them to the track. They just walk them under tack in the barn and that makes sure the horse is fresh and ready to do a Jackie's warrior or a Matoli or etc. You know, they, they're, they're very good at what they do. Uh, I will uh, look at the post time. Uh, if I'm in the last race, very often I'll take them out and jo- have a little jog in the first set in the morning. Otherwise, they're in their stall thinking about why they haven't trained and why all their compatriots have been out, etc. Some of them really have tremendously laid back horses. Uh, and and it, the uh, earlier in the day than uh, that they run, then I it's less likely that I'll do anything with them. Uh, bowl of food around. Uh, well, if they're not going to train, they get a bath and have a 25 minute lead out in the morning uh, and then go back in and they get a scoop and a half of food. Um, and then it's just uh, waiting until the four and a half hour uh, window before the race for Lasix. And when they get their Lasix, they have most of their water taken away, their hay and their food. And then two hours before post, uh, we will um, tie them up, take their bandages off, put ice boots on them. Um, <clears throat> you know, that is just a, it's, it's very similar to, to human athletics where you want everything cold and tight before they run. Uh, and a thorough grooming session. Eddie Keneally always said to me, he said, Tom, we may not have the fastest horse in the paddock, but when we walk into that paddock, we will look the best. Um, and so that's a very important part of, uh, certain trainers regimens before the races. Um, if you look at Aiden O'Brien, every horse he saddles, um, once the saddles on Aiden takes a brush and he brushes their mane and tail and he puts quarter marks in them himself. It's a horseman's thing. You want, you know, we work 16 hours a day and get up in the middle of the night to, to produce these unbelievably majestic animals to compete in what I call elite athletics. And that's effectively what we're asking them to be the, you know, we're asking them to be elite athletes. And um, I can tell you one thing, no premier league league football player or NFL uh, football player goes over there and hasn't had a haircut that week or shaved that morning. So um, you want them to look the part. And then it's a case of, you know, keeping the lid on them and hoping that, you know, you sometimes you get a feeling, JK. Uh, I got it on Friday before the Coronation Cup. Uh, so I saddled her for John's service at Belmont. And she was a little nervous and expending just a tiny bit too much energy at Belmont. Um, I was staggeringly confident uh, when, I, when I legged up heavier. Just, she was bubbling. While I saddled her, I could just feel the energy coming off her. But in the right way, she wasn't getting too hot. She wasn't getting nervous. She wasn't expending any of that energy in the wrong way. It was just, if you could bottle that and and have every horse feel like that, 25 minutes to post, um, then that's what you're looking for. And then, honestly, the worst part of the whole thing is when they're gone. Because 
it's out of your hands then. And that's when I, I tend not to get nervous in the build-up to a race. But once you've set them out on the track with a jockey, there's there's literally nothing else you can do. And then that those are the slowest moments of race day for me. Um, eight minutes to post to, to hearing the bell uh, can be a long eight minutes, especially if you think the horse is live. And, and, and do you, are you a binoculars guy watching your horse warm up the entire time? I mean, there's not I'm, a lot you can do about it, but I'm sure you want to gather information for possibly the next time around. So <laughs> I am a binoculars guy in the morning. I'm not a binoculars guy in the afternoon because I found that I just lose them. I, t- I take them into the paddock and then I put them down somewhere and saddle. And then the next thing is I wake up the next morning and go, oh, God, what do I do with my binoculars? So I've it, the, the, the one advantage of an American racetrack is that you actually can see a huge amount of the, the warm-up with your naked eye because it happens right in front of you. And they turn left, they walk down away from you, and they jog back and into a gallop. And, and at that stage, then, you have to trust your horse and your jockey, mainly your jockey, to uh, get to the starting gate with a well-warmed-up horse who's in a good mental state and is ready to run. Do you give a lot of instructions or, or no? Um, no, I try not to. My, my, I, I've, I, I probably have got better at it over the years in that I just try and tell if it, if it's a rider riding a horse for the first time, I just try and tell them about the horse, not how I want them to ride the race. At the end of the day, I've, uh, I've, uh, you, 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 the, the, the one race that I took part in, thank God there isn't a video of it. Let's just leave it at that. So, um, we, we don't need me trying to tell Javier Castellano how to ride in a horse race the same way as he wouldn't come to the barn and tell me how to train a horse. Um, but if I think that a horse has certain quirks or foibles uh, or needs to warm up with the pony or needs to warm up without the pony or has a habit of cocking their head left in the gate so make sure that they, you've got the head, the, the stalls handlers. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to try and, you know, so much can change when the gate opens that it's... You know, I think I, I try not to tell riders too much about what I expect to happen in the race. Um, that's what we're very lucky, JK, at the end of the day in New York. We have the middle of the summer that is the best in the world. You know, we've got 10 Hall of Famers and 10 guys who have the chance to be in the Hall of Fame. And they're all riding here. So, um you know, I think I think telling them about the horse is important, but not how you want them to ride it. Yeah, we we actually talked to Dave Donk about this, and it's, I think it's an interesting point um, that that you know some people who are fans or outsiders don't quite understand. But you know, I think one of the hardest jobs for for guys like you, guys like Dave Donk, the, the kind of basically anyone not named Todd, Kristoff, or Chad, or Brad Cox, that you have to kind of juggle a little bit with riders because you just, it's harder. Some guys might want to ride your horse, but they can't because they have to ride for someone who's got 300 horses in a situation yeah. or an owner in which they ride three grade one horses for. How do you kind of juggle that situation? Do you get caught up in it? Do you, or like you said, or do you find some solace in knowing that all 20 of them can ride? I find a little solace in it. And, and I'm very lucky in the, um, I, I started training in an era when um, Irad was a bug boy, Jose was a bug boy, Manny was a bug boy. Well, that got me through my first six years of worrying about getting a, tr- a, a rider who I thought could ride because they weren't f- riding first call to Todd and to Chad and they rode horses for me. And and so it was, you know, Irad rode a winner, five pound bug boy, Jose did as well. And, and that was very cool. But now... You struggle. No, it's not that I struggle to get those guys, but if I have a, ma- a runner in a maiden special way or an allowance race, the chances are is they're going to be riding for uh, Chad or for Todd. Um, and, and they deserve that. But the nice fallback is that uh, Johnny V just wins grade ones for me and Javier Castellano just wins everything else for me. So, uh, you know, you do you find people that work for you and that don't work for you, and, and then you try and just stick... You know, I think the one thing that is a little bit tougher in a, in America is to fit a horse, a jockey to a horse. Um, but the top guys can ride anything. Um, 
and and so I think we're very lucky in that you know if you can't get you know when when your backup squad and in, in, and I don't that's very unfair to describe. Obviously, it's fairly obvious that Javier basically rides first call on the vast majority of my horses. If he's available, I want him on. But when you have a backup team of of the likes of Johnny V and Trevor McCarthy, and you know, it, 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 we're very I'm very lucky in that in that sense that that those guys and Junior Alvarado's ridden a huge amount of winners for me, and he's about to ride a couple of two year olds this meet that I really like. Um, you know. They're not bad backup guys. No, I mean, it's, I feel the same way. It's especially at Saratoga or even, you know, at Belmont or wherever I'm at in, in New York. I, I, I find myself looking to see who's riding so much less than when I'm playing elsewhere or looking elsewhere. It's just like, oh, whatever. I mean, okay, I, I, you know, if you get Irad, great. You get Johnny, great. You get Javier, great. You get Dylan, great. You get Trevor, great. You get whatever. I don't normally go like, ah, oh, you know, ah. Yeah. I like this horse, but I, I can't, I can't do this, you know? Yeah. And, and, uh, and so, you know, it's, 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 I think it is one of those things that, uh, that, 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 uh, is, is, you know, it helps quite a bit. Let's, uh, let's jump into some of these, these big horses that you, that you, you've had and, and all the people that have watched the, the Fox broadcast, I'm sure they've seen the, the, the special on your, your ballerina winner. Uh, have you gone away? How did that horse come to you? And, and what did that mean to the barn? Uh, just the mention of her name still makes me croak a little bit, especially when I'm up here. Um, so Becky Thomas, um, called me one day and she said, I think I'm, I've bought a filly and I've been watching you work the sales and I realized how much, what a level of attention you pay. And this is a filly who needs to go to a trainer who has, who has day to day hands on, um, interaction with their horses and and i didn't really think an awful lot more of it and she said i'll be in touch and i said okay wonderful and that was at the obs sale and anyway she called me up and she said tom i bought the filly uh there's a few things that you need to know uh the first one is that she did not pass her pre-purchase exam veterinary exam but i've gone ahead and purchased her anyway because she's had uh a half a dozen starts this year she's quite clearly dealing with the minor physical things that um, that she has, would you like to know what they are? And I said, well, not right now, Becky. Let me, ju- let's just try and get her up here. And and she was at Oaklawn at the time. And, you know, she had a, a, a sort of a, a bit of a checkered past. She was purchased for a, over $100,000 at the two-year-old sale. She uh, was in training in, in New York and uh, w- went wrong. And she went to a horses in training sale. And I think she sold for $1,200 and, guy took her home and gave her all the time she needed and got her back to the racetrack and she'd won some minor stakes at Remington and Zier and then she'd gone to Oaklawn and won a stake there and you know she's a New York bred and Becky identified her and said look this filly should be back in New York and I was very much given the MO of look I've purchased her with a view to her joining the sequel Broodmare Band but I'd like to race her to try and recoup some of the purchase price. And I said, well, that sounds wonderful. So there was a bit of a scramble on as Oakland had just ended. And um, she was basically, she was, she was lacking a van um, to get out of, uh, out of Oakland. And Mark Toothaker very sweetly um, set off from, from Spendthrift. And, and he drove down to Hot Springs and popped her on the trailer and drove her back to Kentucky and, then got her on a van up to me at Belmont. And, and I just remember this fully getting off the van and thinking, wow, considering you've had two days of travel and you don't know where you are, you've got a huge amount of class. Um, and then there was just this, I don't know, mate. It, it, <laughs> it sounds soppy to say it, but there was this sort of tremendous love affair between the two of us. And even Maggie would, would, um agree she she just she was just very very special she was um very sweet um she was a big strong filly but even within 10 days of being in the barn i could see her just begin she was she just thrived in our care um why i don't know but she did she absolutely blossomed and uh she got beaten at first start for us but that was going a mile and she finished second um 
and a New York bread steak. And I thought, oh, okay, you know. And and Kendrick came back in and he said, she won't lose next time, just sprinter. And um, she won the um, the Dancing Renee, and that was my first ever stakes win. And then um, we came up to Saratoga and I said to Maggie, I said, um in the Union Avenue. She's already won a New York bread steak. And my wife thought I'd completely lost it. We would have been two to five in a steak in Saratoga. We'd never won a steak in Saratoga. And I told her that I was going to run her in the Honorable Miss. And she basically told me I'd lost my mind. Um, and <laughs> nine and a half times out of ten, my wife is right over me but thank god she was wrong on this occasion because she then won the honorable miss and then gave me the biggest day of my training career until that point and and a day that will stay with me forever so long as my my mind works i can picture i was very calm beforehand because once the draw came out it was just it wasn't a question of can we win it was a case of she, if she's good enough, everything is in place here for her to win the race. An outside draw with a stalking filly like that is just, it was ideal. And and thing that really added any nerves was the fact that, um, and it still doesn't sit very well with me, but um, between the Honourable Miss and the ballerina, uh, she was, part of her was purchased by um, Gary Barber and Gary wanted John Velasquez to ride her. And, and that was a, that was a tough conversation at the barn to tell Kendrick that he wasn't going to get to ride her in the ballerina, having just won the honourable miss on her. Um, and, but if there's one in a grade one um, and, and get it executed, then, I mean, Johnny couldn't have given her a, given her a better ride. It was a, a sensational ride and an unbelievable rush and feeling and you know the ballerina was a race that we used to watch Travers Day every year um in England so the ballerina was a race that I was unbelievably familiar with for two decades and um to win it was just it was very surreal Maggie was quite heavily pregnant with Grace at the time um and we didn't watch the race together, and um, and it was a it was it was very early in the Travers card as well, and and I and Gary wasn't here, and Becky wasn't here, um, and once it was over, it was actually it was kind of lonely, J.K. And I've said said it before on the thing um, on the on the feature for for Fox that um, you know I actually went back to the barn and just hung out with her and and tried to let it sink in of, of what we what we'd managed to accomplish because to win a grade one anywhere in the world is incredibly difficult when you're of a stable my size uh but to win one in saratoga is you know that's like winning one one at royal ascot to me it, it's this is the pinnacle of american racing i've uh, delmar can have delmar as far as i'm concerned this is where the real business happens did you, you know, looking at the, the past performances and, you, you know, you had the, the effort uh, in November in the, in the Philly and Mayor Sprint where, you know, you were a bet that day as well based on her performances at Saratoga. Was, 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 was it always the plan to kind of have that gap? Did, you, did, did something happen? Did you miss getting her no. start in between there? No, she would have won the Breeders' Cup as well. If you look very closely at the post positions, then that's what beat her. It had nothing else to do with the, to do with it. She was she simply. I mean, and we flew on the day of the draw, Maggie and I, to California, and we got. She was drawn one or two, um, in a in a ten horse field, and I said we might as well go home, uh, because you this is this is not a post position that this filly can win a Breeders' Cup from, um, and and she ran very well. I think she finished fifth or somewhere around there. She she ran creditably, but as Johnny said. You know, when I when I needed to go, I couldn't go anywhere. And we were, you know, she's not she's not an explosive sprinter. She 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 used to win her races on the turn. Um, and when you're drawn down inside with a bunch of fast fillies around you, then, um, you know, she deserved to be the favorite in the Breeders' Cup. She'd beaten 
all the horses, bar, bar the filly who who be, who won the Breeders' Cup in California, she'd beaten them all before, and um, you know she'd she'd had a a, a, a rock solid summer into autumn campaign here, and I just wanted to take a fresh horse to the Breeders' Cup. Uh, I thought that she trained better than I've ever seen her train when I got out there. Um, there's a wonderful picture of Orlando galloping her and she just looks like a mountain of a filly. Um, and she just got undone by the draw and I will maintain to this day that the best horse got, but that's why they call it the luck of the draw at the end of the day. We, we drew the 10 hole in the ballerina and that led us to winning our first grade one. And, and we got an inside post at the Breeders' Cup and that just, it just gave us no chance. Uh, another great uh, grade one for you, uh, Carrick. Uh, tell us a little bit about his story. I mean, he ran for 40 first time out, and then in four starts later, he won the grade one secretariat. Yeah, so a, 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 a bit of a – so Jerry Crawford of Donegal very very kindly gave me plenty of opportunities towards the beginning of my tra training career. Um, you know, we had Brother O'Connell won a mohawk for us. We'd had uh, Craven Carrots. We'd had um, – Jerry gave me my, the, my first ever winner at Keeneland, et cetera, et cetera. So we're, I had a good relationship with the Donegal team. And um, Carrick was another horse who hadn't passed his veterinary exam. He had some questionable issues on his vet at the yearling sale. And Jerry just really in, liked the individual and Connor Foley at Oracle Bloodstock. They, 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 they felt that it was worth taking a risk and giving the horse as much time as he needed to get to the racetrack and then sending him into somebody who would be able to, you know, check those legs every single day, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and robust, uh, he, he, he looked a little bit like his sire and, and he had that determination about him as well. Um, but his works were very moderate on the dirt always, even after he'd, um, he'd become a good horse. He, um, he still really struggled to, to impress you in the morning. So very often with these long distance turf horses, they're, they're half mile works on the dirt and five look very mediocre because what they really want to do is go 10 furlongs on grass. And um, I said to Jerry, I said, Jerry, we can do one of two things. I said, we can go to Monmouth and we'll, we can win a maiden special weight with this horse or we can roll the dice first time out in New York, take a, take a chance because we'd buy ourselves the starter allowance condition. There's nothing on his work tab uh, to say that this horse should be getting claimed. And I think I'm right in saying they only paid $70,000 for him as a yearling. And Jerry said, look, we've come this far. You feel like you to win a race in New York. Go ahead and run him for 40. And, um, and he won. He beat a horse with Shugs. And I said to Shug, what do you think of your horse? And he said, I'm going to sell him as a jumper. And I went, oh, God, we obviously haven't beaten much here. Um, and... He he did. He got stronger physically from that first race more than he would have done with six more breezes into him. Just getting on the grass was um, was vital to the physical development of that horse. Um, and then he he won the starter and was very impressive that day at Belmont. And I, I said to Jerry, I said, Jerry, I'm not sure barking up the wrong tree here but I said we should give him a go in the Kent it's a straight three-year-olds and just see where we're at you know he's had two two runs and he's won both of them let's go to Delaware and we'll run in the Kent and he was he had that Giants causeway in him though where he was incredibly tough this horse um and uh, now with two races under his belt um he and 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 Johnny got on him for the first time in the Kent, and he basically ran off for Johnny uh, in the race. He was doing too much the whole way around there. Got a very very rough trip and finished third. And I was extremely disappointed initially, and happy over the jockey's comments after a race where he's got beaten on a horse that hasn't behaved itself to the best of its abilities. Uh, Johnny rode back in and goes, I'm going to Arlington, run this horse in the Secretariat. I want to ride him. I was like, and Jerry and I were standing. He hadn't even got off the horse when he said this. And and so he dismounted at Delaware. And I, I said to him, and he was dripping in sweat, Johnny. And I said, I said, tell me why. Tell me why. And he said, he said, I made a mistake. I moved my hands. I went to grab at him. And he said, he just locked his jaw. And he said, but he never got tired. 
he said, I'm exhausted from trying to hold on to this horse. He never got tired. All he needs is to take one hold, sit quiet, and hope there's pace in front of him. And Jerry said, stuff it. Go to Chicago. And I was like, oh, well, being the typical sort of pessimistic trainer, I was like, oh, you know, it'll be eight to five and a three-year-old allowance at Saratoga. And he goes, no, no, no. Go to Chicago. We're running in the Secretariat. So I send him off down to down to down to Chicago and look at the PPs and uh we're gonna be thirty-three to one here and we were but an absolute godsend in the race, JK. They jumped out and they absolutely flew early. I think they went twenty-two forty-five going uh, uh, you know, but you're talking about very, very fast fractions. So you could still see the horse was testing Johnny's arms sitting in fifth next to analyze it. He was absolutely tanking down the very very fast opening fractions but that that really set the race up for him um and he was extremely extri- you know for a horse who'd only had three races um to win a grade one on your fourth start was 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 huge and um boy browning always pulls my leg because um i went into the phasing tipton office at, here in saratoga to watch the race i sat down at the front and he goes hey how do you think you'll run and i said i didn't i didn't even blink i just i didn't turn around or anything i just said i think we'll win well, I didn't realize that all the guys behind me, all the facing Tipton boys, started got out their phones and started betting on our horse at 33 to 1. So the roof nearly came off the facing Tipton office when he did win. Um, and I know that Maggie was in the paddock in floods of tears at Saratoga because she was still on air. And uh, it was a cool day. It was a very cool day. We, we talked about uh, a couple of grade one wins with Carrick and and have you gone away and 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 we talked about your first winner uh, who are some other horses that kind of that kind of stand out um in your mind uh, that you've had that uh, maybe weren't the, the big shiny ones but still meant the same um i think that i think two horses stand out one in in england when i worked for jeremy nazida we we won the wokingham with a filly called laddie's poker two and that was a very special uh, achievement for Jeremy. Um, the, the Wokingham is a 30-runner, six-furlong handicap. And we had a filly called Laddie's Poker 2 that we thought might be good enough to win the race. Um, obviously, as a handicap, then you're trying to make sure they get into the race with a relatively light weight. And uh, this filly went wrong twice preparing for the Wokingham. And when I say went wrong she got a hairline fracture of a pelvis, and then when she was trying to come back from that, she got a tendon lesion. So two significant physical injuries. Um, but off 636 days off the track, Jeremy produced this filly to win the Wokingham at Royal Ascot, and um, it was it was just an enormous. When you've worked as hard to keep a horse who's as fast but fragile as she was in one piece it was that was a a huge day for all of us who worked for jeremy um and 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 we knew she was a very talented filly we had fleeting spirit in the in the yard at the time who was the european champion sprinter and they'd done a piece of work together in the in the spring uh and they you know johnny murta had ridden laddie's poker too uh, fleeting spirit and we had a horse called captain brilliance who just won the bunbury cup and was rated 116 lead the work um and and when laddie's poker two finished upsides fleeting spirit uh on quite a foggy morning in april on the race course in newmarket we knew that we had a filly who realistically if she stayed in one piece she was going to be very very difficult to beat and um you know actually ended up being an in one of the biggest gambles in in recent royal Ascot. She started off at 66 to 1, 33s, 25s, 20s, 16s, 12s, and she was backed all the way into 9 to 2 on the, uh, at the off um, and won like a grade one horse in a handicap. So she was very, very, you know, that meant a huge amount to bring a filly back from two major injuries um, and, and win a race like Wokingham Ascot. Was, that was really cool. And, and I guess the other one over here is, you know, it's, it's easy to be sent. No, I don't want to say it's easy to be sent good horses, but you're always hoping to be sent good horses. But to to claim horses and turn them into good horses um, is a lot tougher to do. And tell your daddy, obviously, we claimed him for forty thousand. Um, 
and he has, has you know until he got hurt he was a he he turned out to be a wonderful claim he won a baruch in saratoga he was second in a shadwell turf mile at, at keeneland um you know he was he is not an easy horse to train i've always said that he has the the mind of a five thousand dollar claimer and the ability of a grade one horse so he the re, he's been a real test to to my team to try and just um try and elicit the 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 best out of a horse whose whose mind wasn't always when we claimed him certainly wasn't always on entirely on the job maggie already told on you a little bit did you get did you get a piece of that uh 66 to one or did you get some of that nine to two on laddie's poker too uh no i got a piece of 66 33s 25s 20s 16s and 14s and i actually built an extension on my house <laughs> oh i love it my wife my wife's been telling tales out of school though obviously <laughs> <laughs> i love it uh how about um this trip uh to royal Ascot? i mean obviously being being from the uk you gotta imagine it's a it was a special trip for you to to bring one over there yeah it was huge um look it's when you you, you don't start training um to to not try and dance the big dances, compete on the on the biggest stages in the world. And at the end of the day, Royal Alaska is one of the premier meetings anywhere in the world throughout the calendar. Um, and, you know, it, it was very special. It was great for the Pileski family um, who own the majority of the Philly, but also for the for the two syndicates that own the, the smaller pieces of it. You know, we took 38 people to Royal Alaska um, who might never have done that um, if they if they hadn't been fortunate enough to own a horse who was good enough to win on debut this wrong that you you almost can't believe it when you do get there um and uh honestly it was the whole thing was exhausting uh not tremendously enjoyable for me because uh of the level of of stress of shipping and trying to work out whether you've gone to the right place and what to do when you arrive there and Etc. Etc. But and, and and I thought she acquitted herself very well. In and and this is the joy of hindsight. I should have waited two more days. I should have run her in the Albany going six furlongs, not the five furlong race, and it would have given the course two more days to dry out. She doesn't want much juice in the ground, and she was good enough, as Javier said, she was good enough to win going five eighths at Belmont because she's a good horse, but she's bred to get further. Um, and it, but the you know it was a very very. It was wonderful to have Maggie there with me. We spent most of the week with my mother, which was something that I haven't been able to do for a very long time. Um, and we had the most wonderful, wonderful experience. And Ascot did an amazing job of looking after us. Um, and the filly is back here. She's back at Belmont now, having had a little holiday. And will hopefully point towards the PG Johnson towards the end of Saratoga. I love it. Tom, it's a, it's a, it's a rare dark day that you're up here in saratoga so i don't want to keep you i want you to hang out with grace and willow and and maggie and enjoy your day up here in saratoga because i know most of the tuesdays you're downstate so i don't want to keep you on a day off any longer than i have to i appreciate you taking the time it's been a ton of fun and uh, thanks for hanging out with us it's been great fun thank you for having me on jk Tom, I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, like i said tom tom's usually down at belmont uh, on the dark days um, having to kind of keep an eye on on uh, the group down there. And so this was a rare Tuesday that he was going to be around. And I wanted to make sure that that uh, we got him on, but I wanted to make sure also that he he had some time to spend time with the family while Maggie's off today as well. I'm sure she's working a little bit, getting ready for tomorrow, but uh, not having to report to duty. Um, I really want to thank Tom for taking the time. It's it's I love hearing people's story in this game, especially people that that might not take the the, the typical route. You know, born in racing, was at the track every day at Aqueduct. Decided when they were old enough they wanted to be a trainer to kind of go on a more of a global approach that we saw from Tom. Um, always fun, and and I really love to hear uh, trainers and owners and riders talk about those big horses and what they've meant to them. Um, you know, I look, I, I personally, there's, there's horses that from a betting standpoint or a fan standpoint that really kind of changed my 
involvement in the way I look at racing and how I feel about racing. And it's, it's interesting to hear uh, people like Tom talk about a horse like Carrick and, and the story and, and, and hearing what Johnny said about, uh, can I ride this horse back? And, and those behind the scenes, it's, it's just, it's, it's one of my favorite aspects of this game. So uh, I want to thank Tom for taking the time. I want to thank our friends at Qatar Racing. Uh, once again, um, can't wait to see the maroon and gold out there. Uh, I'm sure they're going to start showing up, popping in some big races. Uh, they, they did, uh, I saw them running a few times, um, opening weekend, and I'm sure that will continue, uh, to happen. Uh, so I want to thank Sheikh, Sheikh Fahad and the team at Qatar racing, um, Nakatomi, right? I think Nakatomi was, uh, was, 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 uh, was one, uh, with a wonderful ride by Tyler Gaffleone up the inside. So, um, eh, what's next? Yeah, what's next? Nothing. It's another week at Saratoga. If you uh, make sure you subscribe, make sure you retweet, make sure you uh, tweet, tweet, make sure you comment, uh, check it out on YouTube, make sure you follow, subscribe on YouTube, anywhere you get your podcast. Uh, In the Money Plus, always an option for Saratoga this summer to get some additional information. Um, and uh, and I uh, want to thank PTF wherever he is if he ever comes back uh, to Saratoga. He's got a house here, so I mean I'm sure he could probably rent it out if you need a place. Uh, maybe Pete can you can hit Pete up for for a rental <laughs> until he finally gets here. Uh, I want to thank uh, Drew and the rest of the team at In the Money Media. Um, we're in the middle of it, and I hope that it's a it's a good one for you. Delmar starting up next week. It's uh, it's summer racing at its best. Thanks everybody. See you next week. I need to know everything, who and the what and the where, I need everything. Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like it's new what you're telling me. I'm curious, George, I hop in the Porsche, five and a horse, I'm ready for war, I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost, I need to know everything. Now you be surprised at the info you get is by letting them talk, so I'm letting them talk.